Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. This is how sin entered the world. It came through Adam, the Bible says. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. Now, you know what people say to that? That's not fair that I'd be held accountable for what Adam and Eve did. Because if I had been in the garden, I wouldn't have made that same choice that Adam and Eve did. Really? Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffers. The world as we know it is a far cry from the Garden of Eden. Corruption and greed run rampant on a global scale as each individual battles hardship and tragedy. How did it come to this? Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress shares how sin entered the world and took residence in every human heart. Now here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. For just a moment, I'd like you to imagine what it would be like to be standing on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. It's there on that scenic hill overlooking Jerusalem that Jesus ascended into heaven. And it's right there on the Mount of Olives where Jesus will return to earth one day. Well, in just three months from now, we'll be embarking on the 2023 Pathway to Victory Bible Prophecy Tour of Israel. And I want to be the one who shows you the Mount of Olives and dozens of other magnificent sites in Israel. Now, the dates for the trip are April 25th through May 5th. Space is limited, and it's important that you reserve your spot today by going to ptv.org. By the way, New York Times best-selling author Joel Rosenberg will join us for a special talk he will give on what in the world is happening in Israel today. You don't want to miss that. And then I'm eager to send you my brand new book from our current teaching series. My new book, just released nationally, is titled What Every Christian Should Know, Ten Core Beliefs for Standing Strong in a Shifting World. We live in a shifting world where false doctrines undermine our daily decisions. In order to remain on solid ground, believers need to embrace the core doctrines that define our faith. Well, in my new book, What Every Christian Should Know, I explain how to avoid shaky ideas that sabotage your walk with God and how to stand on the solid ground of God's Word. A hardbound copy of my book, What Every Christian Should Know, is yours when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory. More details later, but right now, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 5 so that I can share the next study in our teaching series. I titled today's message, What Every Christian Should Know About Sin. Have you ever noticed how words have changed in their meaning over time? For example, it may surprise you to know that the word naughty used to mean without financial resources. Although he was wealthy, because he was reckless in his spending, he became naughty. (laughs) It might surprise you to know that the word awful actually used to mean uh, awesome, to be worthy of all. Helen of Troy possessed an awful beauty. It might surprise you to know that the word nice used to mean unintelligent, ignorant, I would never trust him to make a right decision because he's too nice. But perhaps no word in 
Human language has been transformed more over time than the word human. The word human for a brief moment in history used to mean the pinnacle of God's crowning achievement. That was Genesis 1 and 2. Then came Genesis 3. Suddenly, the word human became a catch-all phrase for every human weakness you can imagine. Sorry I unloaded on you with my anger, but it was just my human nature. Don't put me on a pedestal. Don't put him on a pedestal. After all, we're only human. The poet Alexander Pope said, to err is human. How do you explain that drastic sudden change in our understanding of what it means to be human? It's through an event we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're in a series called What Every Christian Should Know, and we're looking at the 10 core beliefs of historic Christianity. And today we've come to the study of what theologians call homardiology, the study of sin. And you're going to hear me say this several times. What you believe about sin determines what you believe about salvation. And that's why this sixth pillar of Christianity is so important. Now, I wanted to divide up today's message in a way that perhaps you'll remember. We're going to, first of all, look at the way we were, the way things used to be in God's plan. Then we're going to talk about the way it ended, and now the way it is for each one of us. And then we're going to end on a note of hope about the way it can be. Now, let's look, first of all, at the way we were. In the first two chapters of Genesis, you see God's creation firing on all cylinders. Everything's working perfectly. God created uh, the earth and the stars and the planets and the birds and the animals, and he said it was good. And then on the sixth day, he created man, and he said it is very good. And then he created woman and said it's even better. Uh, Well, that's in the Hebrew text. You probably don't know that. (laughs) But it's close to that. That's the idea. Everything was good. In Genesis 1:28, Moses writes, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. May I point out to you that God created man to subdue the earth, to be Lord over the earth. He never meant for creation to be Lord over man. Now, that doesn't mean we don't take care of the environment and... Uh, be good stewards of it. In fact, in Genesis 2.15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, to keep it. We're to be good stewards of the environment, but we never forget the environment is for our benefit. We're not here for the benefit of the environment. God said, I want you to be partners with me. I created the world, now you keep it. And there was just a perfect ecosystem going on between creation and man. I was this Thursday at the Ark in uh, Kentucky preaching, and it's a great place to go and see that full-size replica of Noah's Ark. Um, But the creator, Ken Ham, who's going to be here this uh, next spring, uh, I think what he did outside of the Ark is just as amazing. When he created a, 
a semblance of what the world was like before the flood, before the first sin even, uh, the beautiful gardens of Eden, the animals, and all that was created for the glory of God. There was a perfect balance between man and nature. Before Genesis 3, man never had to worry about a worldwide flood like Noah experienced, or even a local flood like we experienced last week. Everything was in balance between man and nature and God. How did it end? Genesis chapter 3. Before we get to chapter 3, I want you to notice in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Now let's take a moment and review all of the restrictions God gave to Adam and Eve. Number one, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Restriction number two, what was restriction number two? I'll give $1,000 right now to anybody who can cite restriction number two. Or three, I'll give you a million dollars. Or four, or five. You know why you can't name restriction two, three, four, and five? They're not there. There was only one restriction, only one. Think about it. God said you can eat from any tree. How many trees were there? It's plural. We don't know if there were 10, 100, or 1,000. But I want you to notice the ratio between God's blessings and God's restrictions. 10 to 1, 1,000 to 1. That's the way God is. And yet, what happened? They focused their attention on that one forbidden tree. Now, people speculate what that tree of knowledge of good and evil. We don't know exactly what it is. We know that it's going to appear again in the book of Revelation and the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. It's going to be there. But we knew it was off limits for Adam and Eve. Some people say, well, wait a minute. Why did God put that tree there as a temptation if he knew man was going to fall? Why would he do that? It was in order to glorify God, to honor God. One writer uses this analogy. Imagine you're walking down the beach with your mate, and you see somebody of your same sex who has a great physique and is scantily clad, and you notice other people are looking at him or her, and you're interested in what your mate's response is going to be. And your mate gives a glance to that person of his or her opposite sex, and then she directs all of her attention back to you. He or she has honored you and your marriage by refusing temptation. It was the same way with Adam and Eve in the garden. Every day they walked past that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and every day they didn't stop and disobey God. They honored God until they didn't. And that's what we find in Genesis chapter 3. Here's how it all happened. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. You know, Satan was the original magician. You know what magicians do? Their whole shtick is based on distraction. Even David Copperfield, the great magician, made the Statue of Liberty disappear. How did he do it? By distracting people. The magician, whether he's getting rid of the Statue of Liberty or making a coin appear from his hand, 
he says, look over here, look over here while doing something over here. And that's what uh, Satan did. He said, instead of focusing on all of God's blessings, let's focus on this one restriction. And so he said to the woman, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from the tree of the garden. And the woman affirmed that. Yes, that's what he said. You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Then the serpent said, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. First of all, he causes the woman to doubt God's word. Has God really said he uses the same tactic today. We'll look at that in a moment. But then he caused Eve to doubt God's character. There's a reason God told you no to this tree. He's trying to withhold something good from you. God is a cosmic killjoy and the ultimate party pooper. He will do everything he can to make your life absolutely miserable. He's successful in doing it. And verse 6 says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and it was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Have you ever wondered why Adam gets blamed for this sin when it was his wife who committed the first sin? Have you ever wondered why Scripture credits this to Adam and not to Eve? It's interesting, Paul in 1 Timothy 2 makes a distinction between Eve's sin and Adam's sin. They were both sins. They both sinned. But Paul said it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into the transgression of the devil. Eve was wrong. She sinned, but she was deceived by the serpent. Adam knew better. His sin was a blatant rebellion against God. And in Romans 5, verse 12, we find the result of Adam and Eve's sin. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is how sin entered the world. It came through Adam, the Bible says. In what sense did it come through Adam? What sense did it pass on to you and me? Uh, some people say Adam was the seminal head of the race. You understand the etymology of that word seminal? In that sense, uh, we were all genetically present in Adam, and when Adam sinned, we sinned. Some people say, well, no, it's Adam is the federal head of the race. Just like we elect congressmen and senators to go to uh, Washington and vote for us, Adam was voting for us. But whichever it is, the effect is the same. Sin entered the world, death came through sin. That word death, thanatos, means separation. It's not only physical death, the separation of the body from the spirit, but spiritual death. Man's spirit, because of sin, was forever separated from God. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. From one man, Adam, sin spread to everybody. Everybody who's ever lived has inherited this sin virus. You know what the proof of that is? The fact that we die. Death, physical death, is proof we have inherited the sin virus. Now, let me ask you, who dies? Only the unrighteous? No. What we consider righteous people. Uh, do only mature adults die? No. Babies die. The fact is, all of humanity dies because all of humanity has inherited the sin virus. And why did we inherit the sin virus? Because, he says, 
all sinned. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. Notice it doesn't say because we all sin. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We all have inherited that defective operating system, if you will. We're mixed up in our wiring. We're defective in our wiring. When God says yes, our first instinct is to say no. When, we, when God says no, our first instinct is to say yes. We are born at odds with God because we all sinned. And Adam, we were held accountable for our sin. And again, if you don't believe that, God says, just look at who dies. Death is the symptom that we have inherited Adam's guilt. Now, you know what people say to that? That's not fair that I'd be held accountable for what Adam and Eve did. Because if I had been in the garden, I wouldn't have made that same choice that Adam and Eve did. Really? Isn't it interesting, even as Christians, how many times we rebel against God, not just every day, but every hour of every day. We say no to God. We exhibit that same rebellion against God. Now other people say, it's just unfair. It's unfair because of one person's sin, everybody should be counted as guilty. That's just not fair. Paul has an answer to that so-called unfairness in Romans 5, 16 to 17. He said, if you want to see something more unfair than that, just think about Jesus Christ. The only thing more unfair than all people being held guilty for one man's sin is for everybody's sin to cause one innocent man to be found guilty. The only thing more unfair than being held responsible for Adam's sin is to be made forgiven by Christ's righteousness. That's what he's saying in verses 16 and 17. For the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, Adam. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Now get this, verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, that is sin, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign through Jesus Christ. You know, you don't have to do anything to inherit Adam's sin. You just have to be born. But the gift from God is not like the curse. You don't automatically become a Christian by Christ's death for you. Notice verse 7 says, that gift is for those who receive underline that word, who received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. This is the picture of how sin entered the world, how we became separated from God. Remember what I said, what you believe about sin determines what you believe about salvation. There are many people, even Christians, who believe, well, sin, you know, that's not that big of a deal. Sure, we're all flawed. We're not as good as we can be. We're not perfect. That's not what God says. If we're just simply flawed and imperfect and diseased, then perhaps all we need is a code to follow or a behavior modification program to engage in or a good example to follow. But the Bible says we're not just defective or diseased. We are spiritually dead. We are in horrible shape. And because of that, we need a radical solution to our problem. 
Let me show you just how bad it is, the way it is because of the way it ended. What is the spiritual condition of every person who's ever lived? Look at Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. Paul says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is not one who does good, not even one. Paul uses the phrase no one, none, six times in three verses. He's talking about the utter depravity of the human race. I want to stop here for a moment and say something about the depravity of the human race. Man is depraved. Some people wince at that and say, well, you know, that's just not really true. There are people who aren't Christians who love their families. They build homes for Habitat for Humanity. They donate blood to the Red Cross. They're good people. How can you say they're totally depraved? The theologian J. Dwight Pentecost has a good word on this. He said the total depravity of man doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we could be. It means we're all as bad off as we could be. We're all separated from God because even the good things we do have been corrupted, polluted by sin. If you want a manifestation of what God thinks of our goodness and how he views us. Listen to God's description of the world right before the flood in Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's how God looks at mankind. Everything we do, everything we think is only evil continually. Let's look in depth at the spiritual x-ray, what Paul says. First of all, he says, no one is righteous, not even one. Now, that word righteous means to be in a right standing with God. He said, there's not one person who is righteous in a right standing. Again, we have trouble with this because we say, well, you know, there's a great difference in human beings. Yes, on page six of the newspaper, we read about a man who murdered his three small children and his wife. But then we turn to page seven, and here's a fireman who heroically saved a group of children from a burning building. There's a great difference between human beings. That difference between human beings is considerable, but in God's eyes, it's negligible. Let me illustrate that for you. When we used to go to New York every Christmas, we'd get in on Christmas night late and would make a beeline to Times Square to the McDonald's there because it was the only restaurant open on Christmas night. And it was a massive two-story McDonald's, biggest I've ever seen. But looking down from outer space, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between that two-story McDonald's and a hundred-story Empire State Building. That's how God views us. The difference between human beings from our limited perspective is considerable. From God's perspective, it's negligible. These are the timeless principles that shape our lives. You see, the theology of sin matters. This shapes the way we see the world and our place in it. There's much more I want to teach you on this topic. And in fact, I've devoted an entire chapter in my new book to the biblical doctrine of sin. My book is titled, What Every Christian Should Know, and the subtitle is 10 Core Beliefs for Standing Strong in a Shifting World. 
As your radio pastor and friend, I want you to understand how to stand on solid ground when everything in our world is shifting around. False teaching is running rampant, and few churches are doing anything to stop it. In my book, I'll help you understand what every Christian should know about sin, about angels and demons, about the end times, about the Holy Spirit, and so much more. When you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory, I'll make sure a hardbound copy is sent to your home right away. Now, no, this is not a booklet. It's a hardcover book more than 270 pages in length. Again, it's titled, What Every Christian Should Know. Finally, let me encourage you to become one of our valued Pathway partners today. This circle of friends is becoming the financial backbone of this ministry because our Pathway partners agree to give a generous gift every month. You choose the amount that suits you, but when you do, your consistent gifts will reap eternal rewards. Now, here's David to explain how you can become a Pathway partner today. Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. You can sign up to become a Pathway partner by visiting ptv.org. Just click the link at the top of the page to join Pathway Partners. And when you give your first monthly partner gift or when you give a generous one-time gift, you're invited to request a copy of the brand new book by Dr. Jeffress called What Every Christian Should Know. Call us toll-free 866-999-2965 or visit ptv.org. Now, when your gift is $75 or more, we'll also send you the complete collection of audio and video discs for the What Every Christian Should Know teaching series. You'll get that along with the helpful study guide. One more time, call 866-999-2965 or go online to ptv.org. You could also send your donation by mail. Write to P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins. Join us next time for part two of the message, What Every Christian Should Know About Sin, right here on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.